that was just beautiful, beautiful singing. And it was more than a joyful noise. Beautiful. And to thank God that he has given gifts to the body and that people use those gifts for the glory of Jesus Christ to edify people like me and people like you. I want to uh, direct your attention to 1 Timothy chapter 4, and for some of you, you'll have to have a head start to find that, but keep digging, it's near the back, a little book, keep looking for it, and uh, I want to look at a few verses there with you. I was driving uh, here, uh, I don't normally come through West Virginia because the West Virginia tolls are $4.25. There's three of them, and it's only 20 more miles to go through Kentucky, so it costs $12.75 extra to go through West Virginia, so it's like Kentucky says, if you come our way, we'll buy you lunch, so I go to Kentucky. But uh, I was coming up through West Virginia uh, last week uh, on my way here, and I crossed the Ohio River there north of Ravenswood. And I have to tell you, it's a corny thing, and I sound sappy for saying it, but when I cross the Ohio River, there's a little uh, twinge of uh, nostalgia and excitement in my spirit. Again, I realize this is going to sound silly, but my dad was born in Steubenville on up the Ohio River, uh, uh, I don't know, probably 100, 200 miles, and um, my dad used to fish in the Ohio River, and my dad's life wasn't, uh, home life wasn't all that great, and so when his mom and stepdad would have those unholy moments of fighting that uh, often became physical, I think my dad probably went and sit beside the Ohio River as a little boy. And I, my mind, I think of dad sitting there sometimes, there with the river and maybe the stars in the evening. And uh, then the day came when he crossed the Ohio River, went west to Arkansas and met my mom and our family began. Now again, I know it's a sappy story, but when I crossed the Ohio River, there's a sense in which I sense in my spirit this is where it all began. Our family began when my father crossed that river. And there are moments, I think, in everybody's life, if they thought about them, that are defining moments. And in the Bible, there are those rivers that were crossed that were important. The Jordan River was crossed going into the promised land. And that was an important body of water that was part of the uh, salvation story of the people of Israel. I think in history of how Julius Caesar crossed the Rubicon, and when he crossed the Rubicon, it was essentially him declaring war on the Senate of Rome. And so when he crossed the Rubicon, that was the first step he took to being empire uh, or being the emperor of the Roman Empire. I think probably in America today, most all of us can trace our lineage if we go back far enough to somebody crossing some body of water to come to this country. And that's where our history with America would have began if we can go back far enough. 
I know this is taking a while to get to, but every group of people, I think at some point, if they think clearly about their past, they can see those defining markers, those boundaries that they crossed that have brought them to the place that they are at the moment. And I want to speak a word to you tonight, and I would be remiss if I go home and I don't speak this word to you, although it's a word that risks offending you. And yet I don't want to go home not speaking this word. But my great concern for you as a congregation, as one who loves you deeply, is that in this period where you are in between where you have been and where you will go, that there might be a tendency among you to go back and try to cross rivers that you have crossed before. There might be a pull in these days and months and maybe, we don't want to say years, let's say months ahead, when you're in between uh, where you have been and where you will go, and you might begin to think back about the places you have been as a people, you might drift back to areas that you have already come from. You might look at people as potential pastors who would want to take you back to places that God has already, already delivered you from. And so what I want to do is to encourage you, and I'm going to do it a lot quicker than I preached last night. I preached an hour last night. I don't do that to my own people it was an awful thing to do to you, so you've got some time coming. I'm going to do it a lot quicker uh, than I did it last night, if the Lord will help me. But I want to encourage you to not again cross over the river that brought you from legalism that was crucial in bringing you to the place you are today. This congregation was founded many, many years ago. And it was founded for multiple reasons, I'm sure. But one of the reasons that this congregation came into being was because there was enough people who felt confined, and rightly so, by an atmosphere of legalism that was restrictive to their spiritual life. And out of that, they came to this place, they crossed a river, so to speak, and founded this congregation. Again, there are many reasons why a congregation is founded, and that would not be the only one. But that was an important reason that brought this congregation into existence. And you ought not drift back and attempt to rebuild or cross areas that you have been brought from. And to drive that home in your thinking, I want to read to you from the Bible the very important necessity that the scriptures lay on you and I to not be entangled in legalism. What I mean by legalism is an attempt to honor and please God by going beyond what he asked us to do. What I mean by legalism is a oftentimes an honest desire, at, at the root of it is our honest hearts in many cases, but they are people who read the Bible and God says, if you do this, I will be pleased with you. This is what I ask you to do. And there are some who say, well, 
that doesn't seem like nearly enough. Let's do a lot more than that, and God will really like us. He'll really be pleased with us. And that will make us saved, or it will make us superior Christians. However you want to define that, either, either we'll be the saved ones and those who have not done as much as we have done will be the lost or the deceived ones, or else we'll be the enlightened ones and those who have not attained to our level of holiness will be the ones that are less enlightened or are saved but are living in darkness or ignorance. And yet I want to begin with you tonight with these words found in 1 Timothy chapter 4. Paul is speaking to Timothy near the end of his ministry, and at this point he has seen and he has heard it all. And he says in verse 1, Now the Spirit expressively says that in latter times some will depart from the faith. Now I don't think that he necessarily means those who live in the time immediately preceding the second return of Christ. I think he's talking about the gospel day. I think oftentimes and usually actually in the Bible, in the New Testament, when it talks about the latter days, it's talking about the days after the resurrection of Christ, the church age. We, we're living in the times uh, that are leading up or that are between the first and second coming of Christ. And those are often again referred to as the latter days. And I think that that is what Paul here himself is saying. The Spirit is saying that in latter days, many will depart from the faith or from the gospel once delivered to the faithful. And he says they will give heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. Now you have the rest in front of you, but if you didn't have it, the expectation that I think you would have and that I would have is that Paul's about to unleash a, ver a verbose list of the most gruesome, ugly sins you can think of because he's about to tell us about the doctrines of the demons. So we would anticipate he's about to talk about witchcraft and he's about to talk about idolatry. He's about to talk about things that we would put on our naughty, naughty, naughty list. But yet, in verse 2, he says that these folks will be speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. That means that their conscience has been hardened, and so their conscience is no longer working, or at least under the influence of the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 3, you have these shocking words. He says, these people, the deceiving spirits, the doctrines of demons, those who are espousing these beliefs will come preaching the forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving for it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. Now, again, we've heard that passage and perhaps we're not caught by the uh, 
I think the flagrancy of it, the, the abnormal connection, because again, if I hear doctrine of demons, I'm thinking this is the really bad stuff. But Paul says these people who will be preaching the doctrine of demons, they're going to come and they're going to say, if you're really holy, you won't get married. And if you're really holy, you won't eat certain foods. Now, we can quickly sometimes jump ahead and say, well, he's talking about the Catholics forbidding to marry. But I don't think he's doing that. I think they fit the bill, but the Catholic Church comes later. And as far as I know, they don't forbid much consumption, starting with alcohol. So know that they prevent or command people not to eat anything that I'm aware of. So it's not a perfect fit for Catholicism. But the truth of the matter is, is that in the gospel age, there have always been people arising saying, if you really want to please God, uh, why don't you sacrifice even beyond what he's asked you to sacrifice? Irenaeus, who wrote 100 years after Paul was writing, said that even there in uh, the second century that there were people who were forbidding to marry and were saying, you know, if you're really holy, you'll, you won't uh, have a carnal relationships with anybody. You won't get married and, you know, and... Uh, um, and there's always been people forbidding certain foods. Uh, there's always been that issue arising in Christianity. And the fact that it would arise today is nothing new. It's part of what has been happening since Christ returned to heaven. But, but think about the force of this again. This is a very reasonable argument to many people which is that if you're a believer, you ought to be consecrated. You ought to put everything on the altar. Amusements, anything that's pleasing, anything that might lead to any pride, anything that might tempt someone to immodesty uh, or to lust, uh, put it all on the altar, everything. And the more you put on the altar, the more God is pleased. Yeah, Paul is saying, that's a doctrine of the devil. The way you please God is you do what he asks you to do and you receive his good gifts with thanksgiving. See, let's go back to that meal at Sister Anita's. There you are. You get invited to this fabulous feast, the beloved sister's house. There you are, and uh, you really want Sister Anita to like you. You're very happy that she invited you to her dinner. Very nice thing for you to do. It's a once-in-a-lifetime feast, and so there you are. But, but as the food comes out, um, 
it crosses your mind to say, you know what, uh, the way that I think I can best please the hostess is by rejecting her food. She's putting all this food on the table and I want to demonstrate to her how much I appreciate it. So I'm going to say, Sister Anita, I'm so grateful to be here that I'm going to show you how much I'm grateful. I just won't eat any of your good stuff. Like that's, you say, that's kooky talk. That's legalism. Or, or, or imagine that as the food is coming out, you start to find a little fault with it. She's created it. She's worked this masterpiece. The potatoes come out. And you say, uh, Sister Anita, I don't, I don't see any potato skins in there. She says, no, they're mashed potatoes. You say, well, if you take the potato skins off, uh, you take the nourishment away, I can't eat those mashed potatoes. There's a problem with the mashed potatoes. And then when uh, the bread comes out, you say, Sister Anita, where did you buy the bread? You didn't get this at a real grocery store, did you? Uh, you don't have any nutrients. The only bread with nutrients in it is stone ground bread. Is this stone ground bread? No, it's not stone ground bread. Apple pie comes out, she says, and you say, you know what? Sugar's bad for you, Sister Anita. Why would you do this? There's sugar in this. Sugar's not good for you. I mean, she's likely to look at you and say, listen, if you don't eat what's on the table, the next thing that's going to be served to you is a knuckle sandwich. Eat what's on the table. You don't honor the giver by rejecting the gift. You honor the giver by saying, I receive what you've given to me. Thank you. Thank you. A simple thank you will do. See, we, we have very legalistic groups throughout America. And somehow they have come to the ideal that the way you honor God is by rejecting his gifts. I look at the Amish and they look at the rainbow. Look at all those colors. God created all these colors. The beautiful colors. And when God paints, he paints magnificently. They look at God and say, God, we love you so much. We care about you so much. We want to honor you by wearing black. No, he made all the colors. The way you honor God is not by saying, we reject your colors we're wearing black. The way you honor God is you say, we're going to wear all the colors. You gave them to us. Thank you, God, for all the colors. Do it. Receive it with thanksgiving. It's not the rejection that honors God. It's the receiving with thanksgiving that honors God. He wants grateful people, not people who are beating themselves senseless, putting every amusement on the altar when he didn't tell you to put that on the altar. Put on the altar what he told you to put on the altar and say, thank you, Jesus, for saving my soul and for giving me freedom. 
a deceptive doctrine. And it preaches very well. If you take a guy preaching, sit all on the altar, have you put it all, worldly amusements, all of it, have you put it there? Are you enjoying things that are, are not godly? Are, are you enjoying things that, that, that uh, the other than church and singing and worship, are you doing that? And man, you lay it on there, it's like, oh man, it preaches well, but it's not of God. Sounds good. You can fill altars doing it. The only problem is it's not true. Not how you honor God. You don't honor God, Paul says, by being a vegetarian. Some people think that's the way you honor God. I was sitting with a, a, a couple from California. They'd moved to Tennessee. And I asked them, I said, why did you move to Tennessee? And they said, California is no place to raise a family. And I thought, good, in a good place. And then we, we sit down to eat. And I'm sitting there at Fats Cafeteria, Fats Restaurant, whatever. And I order fish. The woman looks at me and says, uh, you know fish have feelings. So I, Ah, well, there's too much California. Ah, it's not good. It's like, what a good time to bring that up. What I should have said, and when I, you ever get in the car and you thought, oh, I could have got her, but I forgot to say it at the time. I was so taken back. What I should have said is, listen, I only kill the serial killer fishes. That fish I'm eating probably ate 20 other fishes. I'm not worried about the nice fish. I'm putting the mean ones out of circulation. If you love fish, eat the big ones. Save the small ones. That's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, you don't honor God by restrict, restricting the, the meat in your life and the Jews would have done. He said, you honor God by saying, thank you, Lord. You put some elk and deer and bear and fish in the world. Thank you, Lord, for putting meat in the world. Pray over it, bless it, and say, thank you, Lord, for it. And that's what's pleasing to God. I'll honor God again by saying, I'm not going to get married. No, marriage was given by God. He instituted it. If you don't want to get married, don't get married. If you want to get married, get married. But don't stay single as a way of honoring God because he's not honored. If you want to get married, get married and say, thank you, Lord. You stay single, say, thank you, Lord. Look at all this money I got. Thank you, Lord. Again, it's not to be refused. What God has given to us is not to be refused. It is to be received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God and by prayer. In other words, God has said, this is good. He created it. When he creates something and says, this is good, that is sanctified. His word has sanctified it. So pray over it. Pray over the food. 
Thank him for it and receive it. And he's like the hostess who puts the food out on the table. She wants to see the food eaten. That's how you bring joy to her heart. I mean, imagine uh, I have three daughters. And imagine I'm on my deathbed, you know. I'm about to be a goner, but I can still talk and listen. So um, it's a matter of days, not hours. I'm, I'm still cognate. You know. And my daughter comes in, and she's never married. I never really talked to her about it. I just assumed she never found a guy she really liked or whatever. I just assumed she liked being single. I don't know. I never thought too much about it. And I'm laying there, and I say, you know, honey, I'm going to see Jesus here before too long. Uh, why'd you never marry? And she says, Dad, the reason I never married was because if I married another man, I was worried that you would question my love for you. And I stayed single so you would never question my commitment to you. If you're a father, how does that make you feel? You say, that's the sweetest thing I ever heard. It's an amazing word. I'm so glad that you threw away the opportunity to have your own family to demonstrate your commitment to me. No, if you're laying there, if you're not dead yet, it would kill you. You say, you broke my heart. How did I ever leave with you the ideal that pleasing me meant not marrying and having your own family and enjoying life? I mean, what you have thrown away from me doesn't make me happy. It breaks my heart. My joy would have come in seeing you enjoy your family and seeing the grandkids, if that's what God had given you. My joy would have come in seeing you happy, not seeing you sad. You don't honor God by rejecting his good gifts. You honor him by receiving with thanksgiving. This idea is pressed throughout Scripture. The ideal that his burden is light is from Genesis to Revelation. I, I don't... I was preaching. I was a pastor before it dawned on me that God wants me to go to heaven. I grew up with a mentality that is akin to God is a hall monitor in the sky, and God forbid you sin three hours before you die, because that would, I mean, you can live perfect, but you live, you sin three minutes before you die, and you don't get the repentance, and you're out, man. And I had the idea that God is, is somehow the hall monitor in the sky, and he, I guess he really doesn't want me to go to heaven. It took me a while till it dawned on me, God wants me to go to heaven more than I want to go to heaven. If I had to sacrifice my son to get to heaven, I might not be able to. I can't nail my son on, on, on a cross for me to get to heaven, but he nailed his son on a cross for me to go to heaven. 
He's not out to get me. He's out to help me. He is out to bless me. Yes, he gives the law, but even the law is easy compared to the alternative. When you say it's so hard, so hard to tell the truth, not as hard as trying to keep track of your lies. You say it's so hard to make amends, it's easier than carrying the guilt. You say, well, it's so hard being nice, it's easier than living in a war zone. You say, it's so hard to forgive people. Nothing's harder than living with bitterness. You say, humility is hard. Pride is harder. Living with an ego that can't be satisfied is harder. You say, generosity is hard. Being enslaved to materialism is harder. Even the law is meant to free us, not enslave us. Have you ever thought about how God does the Garden of Eden? There's God and puts them in the Garden of Eden. I don't know how many trees are there. I think there's got to be hundreds. God says, eat from all of them, except the one I told you not to touch. Now, the liberals are people who eat from the one tree that God said don't eat from it. But the legalists are the ones who walk around and say, you know what, uh, I know he told us not to eat from that tree, but that tree looks a lot like that tree. I don't think we ought to eat from that. To play it safe, let's not eat from those. Actually, this tree over here, it looks a lot like they're similar. And before they're finished, the legalists isn't eating from half the trees. They've gone far beyond. God says, eat from the tree of life. Be thankful. Eat from all the other ones. Eat and offer thanksgiving. I have given it to you. Receive it. It's a banquet for you. But again, the legalist, the mentality is, well, that tree, that tree, that tree. We're, we're just going to play it safe and not eat from any of the trees but the one tree. As though God is happy about that. So God says, wow, these are my kind of people, man. I plant for them a garden. I give it all to them. And they sit on a little bench eating from one tree. Not if they're saying hallelujah. He's saying they're a bunch of knuckleheads. And somehow they think they're making me happy. In the beginning, it was one tree. You come to the law of Moses, it's 613 laws according to the Jews, but there's a lot of repeats there. I think it's a lot less. And you say, well, there you have it. That load is heavy. God puts it heavy on you. No, the Jews took the 613 laws and made about 10 times as many laws. The Jewish teachers made it heavy. But the law of Moses, think about it. The law of Moses was given to govern a nation. A nation. Do you know how many laws we have in America? Have you seen the tax code? Have you seen the building codes? Have you seen Obamacare? Any nation in the world today that operates with 613 laws 
would be considered extreme libertarian. See, people say, is God a Republican or Democrat? He's a libertarian. Libertarian. Any nation that operated with that small of a legal book would be considered extremely free. Because the whole Old Testament law is but a smidge of the first chapter of our tax code. God didn't have to make it hard. He's not out to put the burden on you. You come into the book of Acts, as we talked about last night with those men who walked with Jesus and when the Gentiles become coming, begin coming into the church, remember how they got together and the attitude in Acts chapter 15 was, listen, we've been with Jesus. We understand the heart of Jesus. We have to make it as easy as we can. Now, we, we, could, uh, we could put a lot of stuff on these guys. And we probably got 50 things, but we got to get it down to four. We got to make it easy on them. And there you had the uh, sexual immorality. You had the thing sacrificed to idols. You had the thing strangled. You had the drinking of blood. Interesting, when you come to the book of uh, Revelation there at the church of Thyatira, and the Bible says, Jesus says, now to you I say and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine who, are, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put no more I will put on you no other burden. Jesus says, I'm not going to ask you to do anything more. You've done enough. I'm not going to put a burden on you. That's the heart of God. From Genesis to Revelation, <clears throat> skilled preachers can twist that narrative. Skilled preachers like Jewish leaders can multiply what God said was simple. They preach as well, and for people with guilt complexes anyway, it activates that guilt conscience. But Jesus says, my burden is light. Do what I ask you to do. Do what I ask you to do. Receive from me and give thanks for it. Give thanks for it. It's a feast. Come to the marriage supper of the Lamb, eat and drink and be thankful. That is the gospel message. It's a simple message. It is the true message of holiness. See, the bottom line that is being gotten at here is this. God wants us to be obedient. He wants us to be sinless. He wants us to obey what he's given to us because everything he's given to us is important. He doesn't give you busy work. He's not like a teacher and you sit there and say, I think 80% of the stuff I've got is busy work. They're just trying to keep us busy, man. God doesn't give busy work. He gets it down to the simple basics and the things he have, has given to us will save us from damnation in the next life and damage in this life. 
And then he gives us the creation. He institutes marriage. He gives us a wonderful world and he gives us so many marvelous things to enjoy and he puts gifts among us that lighten the load. And he says, receive them and give thanks for them. See, at the bottom of all this is this. Do you know what the mark of a person who God delights in, do you know what the big mark is? Worship. Think, be thankful, sing, be happy, receive it. Receive it. You think God is happy for you to beat yourself down and about how hard and how burdensome it is? I think he's sitting up there saying, wow, boy, I take such pleasure in that guy. Or is he more pleased than the person who continually says, thank you, Lord, I've been so blessed. I've been given so much. Sins forgiven, clean conscience, peace with you. Gave us this, this great world. Thank you for the mountains and the beaches and the prairies. Thank you for the colors. Thank you for the people you've put into my life. Thank you that I have feet that sometimes gets happy and dances and hands I can wave. I'm glad people have been given to be artists and singers. Thank you, Lord, for what you've done in this world. And I receive it. And I give you thanks for it. Holiness is not self-imprisonment. Holiness is receiving from the Lord with thanksgiving and obeying the laws he has given to us. And those laws are easy and his burden is light. Don't cross back into the river or cross the river from whence you've come. Dwell in freedom. Dwell in freedom, my church. Dwell in freedom. Let's stand. Where's Kaylin at? Has she left? Where's Kaylin? Kaylin, I wanted to hear Acres of Diamonds again. She's fled the scene. All right. Well, she broke my heart. Let's stand together. Justin, give us something. Uh, if there's something you want to pray about, you come. There are folk here who will pray for you. Don't leave here with a burden. If you need to be anointed, come. We'll anoint you. If there's a problem that you want to pray about, come on down. We'll pray with you. All right. Father, we thank you for this day, for the grace you've given, for the love you've given. And Father, we stand here as beneficiaries of grace and mercy and love. And, and Father, every good thing we have in our life, we can trace back to your gracious hand. And we thank you for that. 
We thank you that you have remembered our sins no more, those sins we've placed under the blood. We thank you that when we were lost, you came searching for us. And when you found us, you freed us. You didn't put bondage upon us and bind us with chains of laws, but you broke the power of Satan, and then you, even today, you point us in the right way to walk. Not only do you point us in the right way to walk, but you have promised to never leave us or forsake us, so you walk with us. Father, how richly, richly blessed we are. We give you thanks today. We receive from your hand with thanksgiving. In the name of Christ, we offer this praise. Amen.